Welcome to the Cruciform Podcast, following Jesus on his way to the cross. In this podcast, we talk about how to live a life that is poured out in serving Jesus and shaped by his sacrifice. Here is our host, Perry Stepp. Greetings from the mountain above Zagreb, Croatia. This is Perry Stepp, president of the Biblical Institute. It's my honor to welcome you to the Cruciform Podcast. This is our first true episode. I call this episode Roadmap. In this episode, I'm going to take some of the ideas that I introduced in the trailer that's been floating around for a few weeks and expand on them to talk about where I see this podcast heading. There are two basic ideas that uh, this podcast is, is built around. The first idea is the idea of being cruciform. Cruciform means to be cross-shaped. Uh, Our life is shaped by Jesus and his self-sacrifice. The second idea is the idea of emptiness or kenosis. That's the Greek word. We find this idea in Philippians 2.7, where Paul says, even though Jesus was equal to God, he didn't hold on to his equality with God, but he emptied himself. He gave up his rights and privileges so that he could serve us. And Paul says that that's an example for us. Have in yourselves the same mind as Jesus, who was equal to God, but he emptied himself. Well, what does it mean if we follow Jesus by emptying ourselves? What does it mean if we follow Jesus by being cross-shaped? The whole point of this podcast is to explore those questions. There are four core convictions that this podcast is organized around, built upon. The first core conviction is that we learn from failure. Richard Rohr is a modern Catholic writer who's uh, very popular these last few years. Uh, Published a book several years ago called Falling Upward that I think is a really important book. Rohr is one of these people that I agree with and disagree with vehemently, sometimes in the same paragraph. But the central idea of this book, I think, is right on. And that is that we don't learn from success, we learn from failure. Uh, People who are successful tend to not understand their own success. But failure, especially failure with faith, is the master teacher. So I plan to spend time talking about Rohr's book and talking about how we learn from failure. It's interesting that in our Western um, kind of self-improvement, success-focused mindset, we think it's very natural to talk about learning from your mistakes. But I think it's interesting that the Bible really doesn't seem to say very much about learning from your mistakes. I've spent a lot of time studying in Proverbs and Psalms, uh, the wisdom, those parts of the wisdom literature, the Old Testament. And I don't find much about learning from mistakes. I don't find much about, about improving after failure. Uh, You can find examples of that in the Bible, of course. You see it with the story of the prodigal son there in the Gospel of Luke, um, Luke chapter something. I should look it up before I quote it. Um, In that story, you have an example of a person who comes to himself after he has made his mistakes. And I take that to be an example of someone who learns from failure. But it's not really that prominent in the Bible, that idea of learning from failure. Why is that? I'm curious about that. I hope to explore that in this podcast. Maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe we're we're more individualistic and more success-minded than people in the ancient world were. I'm not sure. But the fact of the matter is that in the Christian life, failure is something that we learn from. And failure with faith is the master teacher. That's our first conviction. 
The second core conviction is that you can't follow Jesus unless you follow him to the cross. Um, we have a success mindset in the Western world, in the American church particularly. Uh, if things aren't improving and growing and expanding and getting bigger and more successful, then we think something is wrong. But Jesus' example is different. Jesus' example is victory through failure. Jesus uh, had thousands of followers in John chapter 6, and he runs them all off. Several times in his life, he had the opportunity to be proclaimed king. He turns it down in such a way that, that he uh, becomes the object of ridicule and shame and is rejected by the people. They choose Barabbas instead of Jesus, and he is eventually crucified. For our sake, he becomes a failure and an object of shame so that he can save us and take on our shame and our failure. This is not a, an American idea. This is not a Western idea. So you can't follow Jesus unless you follow him to the cross. That's the second core conviction. The third core conviction is to follow Jesus, you have to empty yourself. You have to give up your ego. You have to give up yourself just as he did and to pour yourself out for other people's benefit. We said earlier on that one of the central ideas was the idea of kenosis, the idea of emptying yourself. Uh, this is the picture here. Jesus in Philippians 2.7, Paul says, even though he was equal to God, he didn't hold on to his equality with God, but he emptied himself. He gave it up and became a servant. This is the idea. What happens when we empty ourselves? Well, we, we sublimate our ego. We become, in a way, egoless. Our world thinks a lot about ego. Our world thinks a lot about finding yourself and being your true self. But Christianity is about a specific kind of, of egolessness. It's about losing yourself. Read, uh, read what the ancient Christian mystics talked about. It almost sounds like Buddhism in a way, uh, this idea of losing your ego and becoming less and less of yourself and more and more of Jesus. But it's not really Buddhism. It's, it's very much a part of the New Testament and what the New Testament teaches about spirituality, about, about discipleship. You know, John's idea, he must become greater, I must become less. Uh, Paul saying that, that all I want to know is Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's not Buddhism. It's very much a Christian idea. But modern Western culture is very much about the self and finding the self. You know, it's fascinating when you look at the Bible that there's very little idea of Jesus having a sense of self. Apart from his relationship to God, uh, there's really no hint of that in the life of Jesus. I was listening to a scholar this week say that there's really not a psychology of Jesus in the Gospels. He has no distinct personality. You can tell things about Paul, and you can tell things about some of the other Bible writers. You can certainly tell things about David and Moses in the Old Testament by the stories that are told about them, or by the things that they write. But with Jesus, there's no ego apart from his relationship to the Father. There's no self apart from the relationship to the Father. That is all that he is. That is who he is. And as we imitate him, as we imitate him, we, we perhaps find a way to be egoless in a very specific way so that we can be filled and focused on God's purpose instead of being filled and focused on actualizing ourselves or finding ourselves.
So Philippians 2.7 is one of the passages that talks about this idea. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.6, where Paul at the, end of his, uh, at the end of his ministry says, I've been poured out like a drink offering. That's an image that I have in my mind here. Another image is the, the picture in Psalm 22 where David writes prophetically of Jesus' crucifixion and says, all my strength is poured out like wax. Serving Jesus begins and ends with emptiness. It begins and ends with weakness. And only when we embrace that weakness, only when we lose our egos, do we, lose, uh, do we find Him. Find the grace that enables and sustains us for a life of following Him. So the first three core convictions. We learn from failure. You can't follow Jesus unless you follow Him to the cross. And to follow Jesus is to empty yourself to give up your ego, to give up yourself, as he did. The fourth core conviction requires some unpacking. The fourth core conviction is this. Triumphalism is a deadly poison to discipleship. Triumphalism is a deadly poison to faith. Now, I need to issue a disclaimer here. When I talk about triumphalism, I'm going to talk about politics, because I think triumphalism is part of how American Christians tend to view politics. I am not making universal statements or universal declarations. I am talking in generalities. So if I say some people, or if I mention a group, I don't mean that all people in that group are guilty of, or all people in that group hold a particular view. I'm simply saying that this view seems to have a home among this group of people, and some of them are adherents. Some of them hold to this view. So if I mention a particular group, Democrats, Trump supporters, evangelicals, I'm still speaking in generalities. I'm not saying that every person in the group fits the description or participates in it. I'm talking in terms of trends and generalities. Not every Trump supporter not every Democrat, not every Southern Baptist, not every Evangelical. Again, this is trends and generalities and where I think the trends are headed. This is, uh, if I say something about a group, what I'm saying is I think this is, this is true for a significant portion of the people in the group. If I say something and you feel like I have insulted you, please understand that that's not my intention. Again, I'm trying to talk about trends and generalities not spewing out accusations, and, and not painting with a broad brush where I'm saying that every person in the group holds to a particular view. Not every Democrat is pro-abortion. 35% of the people in the Democratic Party are pro-life. But you can't talk about the Democratic Party without talking about abortion politics. Not every Democrat is a socialist, even if you use the extremely broad definition that is common today. But you can't talk about the Democratic Party without mentioning general support for the broad social support network that you find in European countries that, are, that, uh, that have a, a socialist democratic um, attitude or approach to governing. Similarly, not every Republican believes in QAnon. But you can't talk about the Republican Party today without talking about QAnon. Again, these are generalities and trends. And I'm talking about those things, and I'm talking about where I think they're headed. So that's the disclaimer. Now, with that said, what is triumphalism? And I'm talking here specifically about triumphalism in the church. Well, triumphalism is a type of spiritual pride, and it quickly becomes toxic. Triumphalism is a mindset in the church, in Christianity, 
that worship success, that worship numbers, uh, more concerned with attendance and offering size than it is with faithfulness. Because its definition of success is worldly, it tends to become obsessed with power and political influence. I see tendencies here with the way the church interacts with the American political system. And I see it on both sides. Historically, black churches have become part of the Democrat machines in the big cities. And since Ronald Reagan, white evangelicals have become an organ of the Republican Party. Triumphalism is sometimes expressed in seeing your form of Christianity as the best form of Christianity or the only legitimate form of Christianity. If you think the people in your group are better Christians than the people in other groups simply because they're part of your group, triumphalism might be part of what leads you to that, that uh, conclusion. Uh, we deal here with the idea of the Christian nation. Is America a Christian nation in the same way that Iran is an Islamic nation? Or in the same way that the European countries have their state churches historically, uh, should Christianity in America be a, a Christian? Uh, should America be a Christian nation, giving special privileges to Christianity over other groups, special status, special protection? Well, that's a good question. Is it constitutionally true that America is a Christian nation? Well, the Constitution says that America is a pluralistic nation with freedom of religion and no, no religion privileged over another. Is America a Christian nation historically? Well, it depends on how you define it. Do we want America to be a Christian nation in the way that Iran is an, is an Islamic nation or the way that the nations of Europe had state churches you know, I live and work in Croatia, and Croatia is 90% Roman Catholic and historically uh, historically has been very closely tied with the Catholic Church. And I see the effects of having a state church on Christian faith and Christianity. And the effects are often not good. You have the material blessings, the material benefits, the protections, but what does that do to faith? I think of Kierkegaard, who said of his own nation, Denmark, which was a Lutheran nation. Kierkegaard said, if you're in a country where everyone is a Christian, and everything is a Christian, or everything is Christian, then nothing is really Christian, the way the Bible defines it. So, Christianity that is success-driven, Christianity that is achievement-driven, Christianity that is built on seeing itself as better than other types of Christianity, or better than other religions, Glory, success, ethnic distinctives, a failure to see how every expression of Christianity is culturally biased, culturally based. Uh, the tendency to equate its cultural distinctives with true Christianity. We don't have a culture, we're just Christians. Those things all verge on and overlap with triumphalism. Canadian New Testament scholar Gordon Fee said, that triumphalist Christianity focuses on the Christian life as being one of glory, while neglecting that it is also one of suffering. While it's true that we are promised glory in this life, though not the kind of glory we may crave, we are most certainly promised suffering as well. This obviously is not appealing to most people, much less in a highly consumeristic land. Nevertheless, the New Testament makes it clear that it is fully natural for believers to suffer, Yet somehow this suffering aspect is either not talked about or referred to as merely a footnote 
in the teaching of the prosperity gospel. Now, why am I concerned with triumphalism? Why am I worried about it? Well, because as I said, triumphalism is poison. It's toxic to discipleship. It short-circuits spiritual growth. It damages relationships in the body of Christ. It corrupts Christian leaders. It ruins the, the church's witness. It hurts our ability to follow Jesus. It hurts our ability to represent Jesus, to live like Jesus in front of the world. If our primary means of changing the world is power or success instead of the gospel, what good are we? The world has plenty of powerful people, and the world has plenty of people who are chasing after success. What the world needs is the gospel. Remember Acton's law, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We are not going to bring the kingdom of God into the world through political power. That's the mistake of the triumphal entry in the Gospels. Notice the word triumphal entry and triumphalism. Instead, the Spirit expands the kingdom of God as Jesus' people live out his gospel in front of the world as it watches. The church has to stand apart from the political powers of the world. Only then can the church speak prophetically to the world. The church can't graft itself into a single political party or movement. The church can't base its identity on a single politician. Jesus was not on the ballot last November. Evangelical Christians, it seems to me, do not do well with political power. It seduces us. And we fall into compromises and corruption, self-righteousness, tribalism, and pride. A word about what I mean uh, when I refer to tribalism. Tribalism is the tendency to see your side in a cultural conflict as completely good, and the other side in a cultural conflict as completely evil. Now, Paul in Ephesians says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but too many Christians say the other side is evil, and the other side must be destroyed. They're the enemy. Well, that's not what Paul says. Why does triumphalism have this effect on us? Well, it bonds to our egos like Velcro. It bonds on a molecular level to the human desire to look better than you really are, to hide the things about you that are shameful. And as we hide the things about us that are shameful, what our pride does is our pride produces self-righteousness. It turns to criticism of other people to keep criticism away from us. We say, as Jesus talks about, let me take that speck out of your eye while we have beams in our own eyes. Triumphalism works through human pride to take advantage of idealism. Take advantage of our idea to look, uh, our desire to look better than we are. Take advantage of our desire for popularity and human praise. Uh, it takes advantage of our idealism because we, we think we can fix that. We can fix that. And the whole time we're trying to fix it by political power, we become filled with pride, self-deception, corruption, a desire for human praise, human acknowledgement. Triumphalism makes us immune to grace. We think we can become our own saviors. Or we think we can become the world's saviors. And if I'm my own savior, then I don't need Jesus. And if I can fix the world by my own work, then the world doesn't need Jesus. But of course, I can't fix the world because I can't fix myself. I'm going to misquote the Old Testament here. The ego is deceitful above all things. And any endeavor built on human ego will fail, and the longer it lasts, the more destruction and casualties it leaves in its wake. That's why triumphalism is poison. That's why we'll be talking a lot about triumphalism on this podcast. So, four core ideas. 
We learn from failure. You can't follow Jesus unless you follow him to the cross. The Christian life is to empty yourself, to give up your ego, to give up yourself. And triumphalism is deadly poison to discipleship. What should you expect from this podcast? Well, I expect to offer three types of material. First, I expect to offer biblical teaching that emphasizes the cross-shaped, canonic aspects of the text. Second, I will discuss current events from the evangelical world from this perspective. We see plenty of examples of things that need to be examined from this perspective. With the collapse of some of the Hillsong's ministries, uh, Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries, um, Christian nationalism, and and the... uh, the, the damage that it's done to the church's witness. And then the third type of material that, I, that I'm really excited about offering is conversations with Christian leaders about what they have learned from failure. There are some really important lessons for us to learn there. So, that's it. You have made it through the first episode. I have made it through the first episode. Congratulate me, I didn't die. Uh, and I hope to see you the next time. Special thanks to Dave Bechtel, who is my uh, sound production guru. Dave helped me figure out the software and the hardware I'm using. And also to Carthy Masters. Carthy is a voiceover specialist who did the intro and outro, and it is her voice you will hear uh, as we finish up the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Cruciform Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at CruciformPod. Dr. Stepp is the president of the Biblical Institute of Zagreb, Croatia, and this podcast is a production of the Biblical Institute.